Wilder Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. This morning, we are going to be diving back into God's Word, and we're going to be looking at another installment in our series out of the book of Revelation called The Lord of the New Heaven and Earth. And this series is pointing us to Revelation chapters 19 through 22, the final four chapters of our Bible, the final four pages in my Bible. We're looking to the end to see what perspective God wants us to have. Now, throughout 2022, we have seen again and again that the book of Revelation is a revelation of who? It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. We get to know Jesus better by looking at how he has revealed himself to us against the canvas of the end times. And so we have been looking at that week after week this year. And today we are going to continue that study by looking at the events recorded in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. But before we get there, I want to just ask you an honest question. I want you to answer for yourself and your heart as I ask this. And that question is this. When, you, when I say the, the eternal state, Where you go after you die, what do you think about? What do you think about? What comes to mind? What will it look like? Heaven, thank you, Mike. What will will it look like? What will it feel like? What will we do? How will we spend our time? And we'll have a lot of it. And what kind of emotional response does that bring to your mind and to your life? You know, when we talk about where we will spend eternity, for some who are here today, uh, there is a fear that comes in your heart because you're thinking, well, I don't know where I'm going to spend eternity. And I might be spending eternity not in bliss or heaven, but I might be spending eternity experiencing the judgment of God. And if that is you, know that God has provided a way in Christ for you to spend eternity with him and not away from him. And we'll talk more about that both today and next week. But for many others in the room, you you are a Christ follower. You are someone who has trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. But even when I ask you to think of eternity, you begin to think about things like clouds and harps and an extended worship service that goes on forever. And I know some of you get antsy if I go 61 minutes. And so there might be a, a little bit of anxiousness that you have when you think of eternity. What, what will it really be like? And will I really like it? I mean, there might be a little bit of anxiousness as it relates to the eternal state, even for those that know Christ. You know it is better than hell, but you're not certain what it will actually look like. Now, I'm not here this morning to tell you exactly what it will be like. There there are some things that God has not painted in vivid detail for us. There are some things that you just have to experience to appreciate. But we are going to look today at a, a piece of eternity. Not all of eternity, but a piece of eternity a piece of our future, if we have trusted in Christ, that we will get to experience, that may fill out the picture and may paint a little different understanding of where we will spend our days in the life after 
the life we live now. And we see this picture painted for us in Revelation chapter 20. So if you've got a Bible, take it out and turn to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. I want to read these verses for us, and then we'll back up and make a couple of observations to help us understand more of what a part of our eternity will be like. Revelation 20, verse 1 says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night, forever and ever. And so we have these 10 verses in Revelation chapter 20. Now, what do these verses tell us? Well, I want us to see two significant things in these verses. The first one revolves around victory day plus one. Victory day plus one. Now, by, by this, I mean victory day is the day when Jesus returned to the earth. The day when, when he brought the, the armies of heaven with him and won a great victory upon the earth. The passage that we looked at last Sunday. What happens one day after Jesus comes back? Well, Revelation 20 tells us what happens one day after Jesus comes back. Now, in order for us to really understand this, though, I want to quickly recap what we saw last Sunday. What happens just before Revelation chapter 20? Well, what happens just before this is Jesus has returned to the earth. This is what we saw in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16, where Jesus, as promised, comes back to this earth. And when he comes back to the earth, he comes back with his bride, which is the church, It's you and I, the ones that were called up to heaven with him before the tribulation began and have been outfitted with a new body and are returning with Christ to the earth. Revelation 19, 7 to 9 talks about that and talks about the events that will follow as like a very special wedding reception, a party on the earth celebrating the victory that the lamb has won for his bride. Then Also, we saw last week that Jesus had ended the corrupt world system. 
In Revelation 19, 2 and 3, it talks about how Jesus will judge the corrupt world system, all of the world governments that were leading people astray and were mishandling the justice of those who were in need. Jesus sets it on fire and it, and it burns up. It is judged and dealt with and will be replaced with something far better. We'll see that in a moment. But we also see that Jesus also, at his return, judged the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the enemy armies. He judged those on this earth that had united in opposition against him. He took care of them. Now, this does not mean that when Jesus returned that every living person on the earth died. It doesn't mean that. It means that Jesus judged those who were opposing him. He took care of those who were actively seeking to destroy the people of God. That's who Jesus dealt with, the, the false prophet, the antichrist, and the enemy armies. He deals with them. But there are still people on the earth, people that have not yet experienced death, people that are still living in, in bodies and living lives like you and me. They're actually still on the planet after Christ returns. So if this is the environment of what is going on when, in, in chapter 19, then what do we see happening in chapter 20? What happened next? What happens on victory day plus one? Well, this is what we see inside of these verses. Now, the first thing we notice is that the next thing that happens is there is a thousand-year period upon the earth. Now, we see this quite clearly inside of these verses. Now, I realize this is a little bit of an eye chart, but I put it all up there together with these words highlighted in yellow just for you to see that six different times in these seven verses, the phrase thousand years is used. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that on victory day plus one, there will begin a thousand-year period of time where something special, unique, and different is going to happen. There is a, a thousand-year period that begins when Christ comes back. Now, I, I want to just think for a moment about this. First of all, there are biblical scholars who are, who are godly and who love Jesus and who love the Scripture that see all of these references to a thousand years and, and they argue that they do not refer to a literal thousand years, but merely refer to something else. And to that, in, in response to that, I would just say the plainest reading of this text, the simplest reading of this text, is to see these six references, not one, but these six references to refer to a thousand years. So I'm going to be sharing with you my perspective and while would, as, a, as a church, our doctrinal statements perspective, that the thousand years refers to a literal thousand years upon the earth. Now, another thing that we ought to think about this is a thousand years is a really long time. It's a really long time. My, my wife has a grandmother who is 107 years old. Just out of curiosity, can anybody beat that? I don't mean in the room, that would be awesome. But I mean, does anybody have a relative older than 107? Okay, Mark does, impressive. Mark Hardesty, very good. But so let's just think, let's just say that give or take, that's close to 100, right? Let's just take 100 as, a, as our, our, our old age in our lifetime. A thousand years is 10 times. That life times 10, that's a long time. 
Her grandmother was here during the Spanish flu, World War One, World War II, all that stuff, all the way through the events of the last couple of years. I mean, she experienced all of those things. It's a long time. I, I'm nearly 50. It's 20 of my lifetimes. It's my lifetime on repeat times 20. That's a long time. I think of the things that I've seen and experienced. There's been a lot of things that have happened. A college student today, it's significantly more than those 20 times. It's maybe 50 times their lifespan. So we're talking about a very long period of time. We're not talking about forever, but we're talking about a very long period of time. So in in the history of this planet, there will come the time when Jesus comes back, and after he comes back, it will launch a thousand-year period, very long but not forever, when some specific things are going to happen upon the earth. Are you tracking with me on this? Well, what happens? Well, the first thing that we see that happens is that Satan is imprisoned. Now, this is a big deal, right? When Jesus comes back to the earth, he takes the Antichrist, a human leader. He takes the false prophet, a human leader who is teaching a false religion, both of them inspired by Satan. He judges them and he places them in the lake of fire. But there's no reference to exactly what he does with Satan. So what happens to Satan at this time? The, the adversary or enemy of God's people. Well, verses one through three tells us. It says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Now, you see that repetition? Four different titles are used there. Four different names. Why do you think four different names are mentioned there? to make sure that we don't misidentify who is being judged in this instance. The one that tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, the ancient serpent, that one. The one that, that, that accused Job and, and, and led to that rebellion against him, that one. The one that is, is, is like a lion that is prowling about to devour the church, that one. The one that wants to destroy Israel as a people, that one. It is Satan who is rounded up here at the return of Christ. And what happens to him? Well, Satan is rounded up and is bound for a thousand years and thrown into a pit with a seal placed on top of it. Now, how does that work and where is this pit? I don't know. I think it's, it's, it's picture language, but basically the idea is clear. For a thousand years, Satan will have no sway upon the earth. When Jesus comes back, Satan is taken care of. And, and I think it's fascinating. Who, who takes care of the dirty work on this one? It doesn't even take Jesus. Jesus just says to one of his angels, would you shut him up? And he does. Would you take him out? And he does. Would you seal him up so that he cannot influence the events of this earth for a thousand years because I've got work to do on this planet? And he does. That's what happens during this millennial kingdom, millennium thousand kingdom upon the earth. Well, when Satan is in prison, then what happens? Well, the next thing that happens is that Jesus reigns an earthly kingdom that goes on for a thousand years. Now, 
Friends, this is what is talked about in verses four to six, specifically right there where it talks about how those who came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years, Jesus will set up shop and will reign upon the earth. This is different from the end end, right? This is different from the true eternal state. It's different from the new heaven and the new earth. It's different from where we will get in just a couple of weeks when we look at chapters 21 and 22. But right after Jesus comes back for a thousand years, he will establish a kingdom upon the earth where he will reign from Jerusalem and will administrate justice upon the earth. Now, why does he do that? I mean, that, that seems a little odd. I mean, Jesus, hurry up. I mean, you, you just got back. Let's, let's go ahead and take care of all things right now. Why the delay? Why the thousand-year kingdom? I don't know that I know exactly why, but I do know that God has been planning for that thousand years for a very, very, very long time. Throughout the Old Testament, there are promises given about a kingdom where God will reign over this earth from Jerusalem. The Old Testament prophets talked about it all the time. Places like Psalm 72 and a score of other places. But I want to just highlight a couple of instances that talk about this kingdom era from the book of Isaiah. The first one I want to look at is in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's looking forward to a day where there will be a kingdom where Jesus will be reigning over this earth from Jerusalem. Friends, this is describing events that have not yet happened. I mean, when was the time? where a, a leader led from Jerusalem the entire world. That time has not yet come. And if it doesn't come, then God's word maybe is something that we could question. But the promise to one day rule over the whole world, over all of the nations from Jerusalem, is a promise that will be made good when Christ returns. And for a thousand years, he will lead and reign over this earth with equity and justice. So much so that all of the military budgets of the world go away. They just, there's no need for them. We don't need an army anymore. We're gonna take all of our weapons and we're gonna melt them down and turn them into farming equipment because there's equity and justice upon the earth. We see that happen in the time that is the millennial kingdom. We also see this in Isaiah chapter 11, verses three to nine. It says, in his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor. Who's the he? It is Jesus when he sets up his kingdom upon the earth. And then there's these famous verses. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Friends, again, this has not happened yet. But it will. When? It will during the thousand-year kingdom when Jesus is reigning from Jerusalem over the earth. Now, not only will Jesus establish this kingdom, and we see that in chapter 20, but also he will establish this kingdom and he will invite us, followers of Jesus, to reign with him. Now, that's amazing. When I say us, I really mean us. Remember, who is it that returns with Christ when he comes back to the earth? The church, resurrected, new bodies, returning with Christ. So what will we be doing in eternity? Well, we'll talk about more than a thousand years after the return of Christ in a couple of weeks, but one of the things we'll be doing in eternity is for a thousand years we'll be reigning with Christ upon the earth. We see this in verses four to six again. There were thrones, there were people who were given authority to judge that were placed on those thrones. They're reigning with Christ for a thousand years and they will reign with him again and again and again. These things are mentioned. Uh, Specifically, it's interesting to see that one of the groups that is referenced that is serving with Christ are those tribulation era saints, those that were killed during the seven years preceding the return of Christ to the earth. They're mentioned here specifically. Even they have the privilege and honor of reigning with Christ upon the earth in the last days. Just an amazing thing. Now, when I say that, what, what, are we, what will we be doing? Well, remember, people will have survived the second coming of Christ. There will be humans upon the earth who will be living and marrying and having kids and all that kind of stuff. But we as the church come back in resurrected bodies to help administrate and provide godly leadership to the world under the overall leadership of Christ. Now, that is a remarkable thought. Whatever you think about eternity, it needs to include continuing to serve Christ and to continue to serve him in new ways forever. What exactly will that look like? I don't know, but it's somehow tied to our faithfulness now. Remember in Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus told the parable of the talents, different people given different talents, how faithful they were with their talents led to the responsibility they were given on the other side. Jesus tells that story right after talking about the events of the end times. Chapter 24, Jesus talks about the end. Chapter 25, he tells this parable. What's the implication? Right now, we've been given some talents. We've been given opportunities to serve Christ. If we faithfully serve Christ now, then our responsibility in the millennial kingdom age will differ from if we are neglecting our time in serving him now. Doesn't mean that we won't be with him in that day. That's on the basis of grace. But also on the basis of grace, he has given us talents that he intends for us to use. And as we faithfully use them, our responsibilities are scripted for this kingdom age. We are coming back, friends, and we are coming back with Jesus to reign here upon the earth. So what does this, what does this tell us? A few things about our future that I want us to, to kind of settle in our souls here. One of the things about our future is that we need to be reminded that eternity will involve life. It will involve life. We don't cease to exist. We don't move to some kind of soul sleep. 
but we continue to have thoughts and actions. We continue to do things. If we know Christ and if we have trusted in him, then we will continue to serve him. And part of that will include this thousand year kingdom upon the earth. Life will be a part of our future. If you think that eternity is harps and clouds, add in that eternity is also serving Christ upon this earth. But remember this, as we serve Christ upon this earth, it will not just be life, but it'll be a better life. Why? Because this body that we have that is prone to corruption, this body that we have that is prone to breaking down, this body that we have that is prone to be tempted to sin, it will be upgraded. It'll be upgraded in a significant way to a body that does not break down, to a body that is not tempted by sin. We have that promise and that, that hope. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought much about this, but as your life goes along, it can feel like our lives are a series of losses. It just feels that way sometimes. You know, early in life, you begin to think life is a set of gains. I gain a job. I gain a career. I gain a spouse. I gain children. I gain strength. I gain height. I gain weight, whatever it is, right? We gain some things. We think of life as gaining for a season. But, but then at some point in our lives, it begins to transition. We, we lose a spouse through death, divorce, whatever. We, we lose kids. They move away. We lose friends. They, they go on to eternity ahead of us. We lose a career. We retire or we get shown a door. And because of that pattern, as we get older, there's a a temptation for us to be people of despair because we're just experiencing loss. You know what this passage reminds me of? Hey, our best days are all ahead of us. Our best days are all ahead of us because there will come a day where we will have an upgraded body, where we will be living life in a world ruled by Jesus and given responsibility and serving him directly, where we can see him face-to-face and report back. Will Zoom be a part of it? I don't know. But there will be communication and opportunity for us to see and to interact with Jesus as he reigns upon the earth. Friends, our, our life will be better. It's not just losses from here on out. There's a big gain ahead. Not only that, it's better life and community. Jesus doesn't come back with just one person. He comes back with the church. And it's not just the church from one era, it's the church from all eras. It's possible, it's possible that Charles Spurgeon and I might be serving coffee at a cafe in the kingdom. That would be neat. But we also know that in the kingdom will not just be famous people. There'll be people that we've never met, but that served Christ faithfully a millennia ago. And we'll get to see them too. We get to serve with them too. Friends, we get to serve in community. Right now as a small expression of it, it's gonna ramp up in all times. And that's not even counting those loved ones that have gone before us that we'll see again. And also, I just think about our future, knowing if that's what the future is like, serving in community. Friends, should that not influence the way that we live our lives now? If, if living in relationship with Christ and obedience to him, serving others, 
worshiping him, living in community, if that's where eternity is headed, should that not be what dominates our life today? I, I believe it should. And so we think about what we learn from looking at Victory Day plus one. But there's a second thing I want us to see. And that's looking not just at Victory Day plus one, but it's looking at Victory Day plus a thousand and one. In other words, this thousand years is going to end. And then what? And then what? Well, to some degree, in two weeks from now, we're going to look more specifically at that. But Today, I want us to look at what is included in these verses that we just read, in verses 7 to 10, about what happens Victory Day plus 1,001. So what happens in that era? Well, what happens in that era is that Satan is released from prison. Now, why? Why? Again, I don't know exactly. I can't tell you exactly why. But what I can say is this the best. Why? Because the best authored this moment. From all time, from all history, Jesus tells us that Satan will be released from prison after a thousand years being bound for a purpose. And I believe that purpose is to reveal to us certain things. So I want to look at what we what is revealed to us through the release of Satan in a moment, but I want to, first of all, just summarize what happens when he's released. When Satan is released, it says that he goes to the four corners of the earth and he leads a rebellion. Now, as crazy as that is for us to imagine in a world that has been led by Jesus for a thousand years and led by resurrected people for a thousand years, in that world, the people that lived into the millennial kingdom not the ones that were resurrected already, but the people that lived in, among them and their descendants, there is a rebellion. Satan deceives them, they are tempted, and they form an army. So this obviously took some time. And that army then proceeds towards Jerusalem to attack Jesus and the leadership of the world in that day. Now, does that sound familiar? If you've been with us in our study of Revelation, it ought to sound familiar. It's the same plan he tried before to no avail when Jesus came back. But he tries the same plan again. And as he tries that plan, he is also going to fail. As fire comes from heaven to consume the army, Satan is grabbed at this point and thrown into hell, the lake of fire where he will spend forever and ever and ever. So again, why is it that this event is included. Why? And even if it's included, why are we told about it? And I think it's because there are certain things that God wants to reveal to us. So what does God want to reveal to us in this moment? Well, one thing that I think God wants to reveal to us is something about Satan himself. And what he wants to reveal to us about Satan, I believe, is that Satan's playbook is limited and his character is static. You know, why is hell eternal? Why is it eternal? Why is the the torment that is found there going on forever and ever and ever? It's because Satan's not going to change. He's bound and, and chained and thrown in a bottomless pit for a thousand years and gets out and does the exact same thing he did before. He's not redeemable that way. So there needs to be an eternal place for him to go. And part of what we see is, is that. I think it's interesting too, this, this, his playbook being limited, it's a reminder to us that 
you know, the patterns and the ways that he tempts us are, are on repeat sometimes, aren't they? He's not all that creative. He just changes the, the pieces a little bit and makes another run at us. But we see here that his playbook is limited and his character is static. A second thing, though, that we see is not about Satan, but it's about us. It's about us. And what we learn about us is that our problem is not just external. Our problem is not just external. Now, follow with me for a moment on this, and this will maybe will make some more sense. What are the three sources of temptation that are mentioned in the Bible? There are three general sources of temptation. One source of temptation is the temptation that comes to us from the world around us, the, the system of the world, the temptation that is out there in the world around us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. There are things in the systems around us that want to tempt us to sin. Second source of temptation is the devil. The devil is the source of temptation. 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He is tempting and deceiving us. A third source of temptation, though, is the temptation of the flesh. Romans chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So these three sources, two of them external, one of them internal, all waging war against our obedience to God. Now, what happens in the millennial kingdom? Well, one thing that happens in the millennial kingdom is the world is taken out. The world system is judged. It is set on fire where it will burn forever and ever. The world system is taken out. A second thing that happens there is that the devil is bottled up for a thousand years. And so we see that in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2. But friends, what about the flesh? The flesh is still present. And I don't mean the flesh of those that have already trusted in Christ, those that are, have, been, have received this resurrected body, but I mean the flesh of those who live into the millennial age. Those folks still have a temptation and a struggle to sin. And it's clear that because that is present in their lives, that they still are able to sin. So that when Satan is released, they lean into his temptation and they end up leading into this life of sin. Now, what is the solution for the flesh? The solution for the flesh is the resurrection. It's the upgrade of our body. Why is it that Jesus couldn't just give us a self-help plan? Because of our flesh. I mean, a self-help plan could have pointed out the flaws of the world and could have told us to steer clear of Satan, but the self-help plan could not be enough to overcome the flesh inside of us that is tempted to sin. So Jesus came to give us an upgrade. He came to die on the cross for our sins and then to raise from the dead and offer his resurrection life to you and to me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42, it says this, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. The, the, the perishable body that we have must be upgraded 
to an imperishable one if we are ever to fully overcome the temptation of sin. And the revelation that we see inside of the kingdom helps us see that we have a sin problem and that sin problem is not just in the world and it's not just the devil made me do it, but it actually is attached to us. But Jesus made a way for that as well. And then the last thing that we see that is revealed in these verses is that we learn something about Jesus. And what we learn about Jesus is that he is sovereign over and stronger than all. You know, he's sovereign over even Satan. You realize that? How is it that Satan gets out of the bottomless pit? He's allowed out. He's allowed out. No, why? That's disorienting for us a little bit, but he didn't figure out a way to break out. According to the plan of God, he was allowed out for a a time and for a season. Jesus is sovereign over even him. He's sovereign over every evil force and influence in our world today. He's sovereign. He can be trusted. Jesus can. But not only is he sovereign over those things, but he's also stronger than all things. He's stronger than all. It's amazing to see this army comes at the end and it's like they're approaching the city and in the city of Jerusalem, they're having a worship service. I mean, they're just, they're, they're not manning the, the cannons. They're, they're having a worship service. They're, they're continuing to, to, to lead and the army gathers and then the fire of God comes down and just takes care of him because he is just more powerful and stronger than all. Friends, we have the privilege of knowing and serving and living in relationship with the one who is sovereign over and stronger than all. Why would we entrust our lives to anyone else. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for these verses, for the encouragement that we see inside of them. We pray, Lord, that you would just prepare our hearts and lives to, to live in light of victory day plus one, victory day plus a thousand and one, that we would be trusting in you for the forgiveness of our sins and for our hope for eternity. And Lord, when we have been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. May we then still have praise to give you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 